For about a month back in 2018, our church's sound system was unable to record the messages that I was presenting on Sunday mornings. This, of course, fell right in the middle of my series on the life of Joseph. So what I've decided to do for those that are still interested in following that series is use my notes from that time to preach the next three or four sermons in the series from here in my office. The sound quality will be different and there won't be the same interaction as there is in a live sermon, but I hope these filler messages are a benefit to those of you that want to complete the series. Also, I want to take this opportunity to thank the podcast listeners in New Jersey, Virginia, and California, and of course my Dutch daughter in the Netherlands, for taking the time to listen to these messages. I know nothing about you other than the state in which you live or the country in which you live, and so <clears throat> I would love to hear from you, whether it's positive or negative, some sort of feedback um, I would find very helpful. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'll post my personal email address in the episode notes, and I would encourage you if you can just take a few moments and, and send me a quick note. I would really appreciate it. Thank you again, and the Lord bless you. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 38 and looked at Judah and, of course, his mother, Leah. When God saw that Leah was unloved, indeed hated, he took compassion on her. Because of the customs of the day, she found herself locked into a loveless, bigamous marriage. As she bore her husband son after son, she named them after the longing and pain in her heart. God heard her and would one day thousands of years later, write those names on the gate of the eternal city. This is a big story. Finally, her fourth son was born, and she called his name Judah, saying, This time I will praise the Lord. The previous three sons she named according to the longing of her heart for her husband's love. This time it was not so temporary as that. She had no idea this squalling baby boy would one day become the ancestor to the Savior of the world, Jesus of Nazareth. But, of course, Judah seems to fail at every turn. He sells his brother into slavery, marries a Canaanite woman, raises two, by all accounts, horrific sons. After the death of his wife, he hires his daughter-in-law as a prostitute. You might be thinking, that's worse than me. And you're probably right. But that didn't stop God's love from pursuing Judah, or you, at every turn. And it's not until Judah gets caught that we begin to see glimmers of morality in him. Our conclusion from that sermon was this. Regardless of mankind's endless scheming, God will work out his plan. Now, Back to Joseph. I've decided to divide this message into two halves. And so um, I'd like to begin the first half by reading the entire story that we'll be looking at today. And um, so if you'll turn with me to Genesis 39, let's read that together. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man 
and he was in the house of his master the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was, from the time that he had made him overseer of his house, and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time, when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me to mock me. So it happened, as I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was, when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you for each of the folks that are listening to this at this time. And I just want to pray uh, for each of them. There's so many troubles and difficulties and life is so full of pain. And, and I know nothing about the folks that are listening, but you do. And you know when. And you know their needs. And I just ask that you would meet the needs, that you would manifest your love and your grace to each person. I pray that you would give us a right understanding of your word here as we listen to the next, uh, as we listen to this for the next few moments. Thank you for this time in Jesus name. Amen. So I've titled the first half of this message, Joseph, a slave outwardly. At Judah's suggestion, Joseph is sold to Midianite or Ishmaelite slave traders heading for Egypt. 
I think given half a chance, we could reflect on this thought alone for the remainder of this message, but I won't inflict this on you. Psalm 105 verses 17 to 19 tells us that Joseph was put in fetters. He was locked up, could not escape. And it wasn't just for a short time. When we look back at the ancient maps and the ancient roads that um, these folks would have taken as they were traveling through this area into Egypt, we see that by foot it would have taken 10 to 14 days to make this journey. When Joseph arrived in Egypt, he was sold to a man named Potiphar, the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. It seems to me by what the scriptures reveal about Potiphar that he was a noble and just man. You might be thinking, what about the way he threw Joseph in prison when his wife accused Joseph of attempted rape? Well, I think several things could be said about this. Firstly, he could have had Joseph killed on the spot for this crime. He was, after all, only a slave. The fact that he didn't, I think, tells us something about what Potiphar believed regarding Joseph's actions. Secondly, he had to somehow appease his wife, and the tension it could have caused if he would have done nothing would have been unlivable in that home. Regardless, let's move on. Joseph here was forced to learn a new language and a new culture. Much more difficult than that, Joseph had to come to terms with the fact that he was now just a commodity. He was just property to be bought or sold at the whim of others. He had been entirely stripped of his personhood. Why am I telling you all this about Joseph and his situation? I think for this reason. Joseph had every right to be bitter or consider himself a victim. In many ways, I think many of us that are living in a type of victimhood culture can take heart from Joseph's life. As society moves around us from Judeo-Christian ethics, where each individual is created in the image of God, into a secular or pagan ethic where individuality is disregarded and we are only identified by the group or tribe we happen to be part of, the Christian can learn from Joseph's reaction to his unfair treatment. Joseph had a choice. He could be bitter and do the worst job possible or move forward. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place and maybe it's not even our own fault. And we have something before us that needs to be accomplished. And in our bitterness, we do the worst possible job we could think of. That isn't what Joseph did. Joseph just got to work. Here he is in a totally unfair situation, and yet he finds something to put his hand to. He's working. He is creating meaning in his life by taking up the responsibility that has been placed on him. And this is not just temporary meaning. God is watching. Because the meaning Joseph is creating is a result of dependence on God and an objectively good moral choice, Joseph was able to have a sense of fulfillment as he trusted and served his God. I might ask, why do you work? 
And you might rightfully answer, well, I have to eat and I have to have clothes and I have to have shelter. Food and clothes and shelter are merely the byproducts of work, not its goal, at least not for the Christian. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 34, to see what Christ says about work. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If we pursue the byproducts, which is for us primarily money, because it provides the food and the clothing and the shelter that we need day by day, if we pursue that byproduct, we may end up doing whatever it takes to reach the byproduct and therefore miss the goal, which is God's kingdom and his righteousness entirely. And the result of this is we only end up feeling more empty than when we started. The work does not create that sense of meaning in our lives that God has given us work for. Some of us have jobs that we dread. We dread getting up in the morning. We dread having breakfast. We dread hopping in the vehicle and heading off to work. And I know up here in Canada, I used to work in construction and it was cold, bitterly cold, and the wind would be blowing and it would be snowing. And I knew that I would have to spend 10 hours of the day out working in the miserable cold weather and, and I dreaded it. And some of us have jobs that we just do not look forward to. And I think part of the reason that this can happen is we see our job as a means to get money, as a means to provide food, clothing, and shelter, as necessary as they are, rather than seeing our job as a gift God has given us so that we can seek His kingdom and His righteousness. And I think if we begin to think better about the idea of, gift, uh, of work as a gift from God, that we may begin to turn around our thinking and actually uh, begin to enjoy or look forward to going to work rather than dreading it. Let's move into the second part, the shorter part of our message. Are you a slave? Maybe not like Joseph. As a matter of fact, very unlikely that you're a slave like Joseph. But there are principles in this story that are unmistakable to the careful reader. Maybe you're a different type of slave. Maybe you're a slave to your cell phone or social media or TV or lying or money or nicotine or alcohol or pornography or drugs. The list could go on and on. And in your relationship to these things, I might ask you, who's in charge? Is it you or the cell phone? Is it you or social media? Is it you or TV? Is it you or lying? Is it 
you or money? Is it you or nicotine or alcohol or pornography or drugs? Who's in charge? Maybe through your own fault. Or worse yet, maybe through no fault of your own, as in the case of Joseph, you find yourself sold into slavery. Ultimately, any one of these things that I've just listed can take the place of God in our lives, in which case we are sold into the worst type of slavery, slavery to sin. What's the answer, you might ask? How do we move forward now? Is there hope? even for me. In this second part of the message, in spite of all the outward temptation and oppression experienced by Joseph, we see that he found a way to be free inwardly. And I think the first thing that we notice is that the Lord was with Joseph. It's mentioned four times in chapter 39, which we read at the beginning of this message. It's in verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, and verse 23. Not only is the Lord with Joseph, but his boss, his master, Potiphar, notices that the Lord is with Joseph. I sometimes wonder, what did Potiphar see? The scripture doesn't say specifically. Potiphar was very likely a polytheist. If he was a regular Egyptian, he would have believed that there were many, many gods. So the fact that he saw that the Lord was with Joseph must have moved him deep in his heart. What about you? If I went to your workplace and asked the people with whom you spend the most time, Do they see that the Lord is with you? And what would that look like? Honesty? Hard work? Patience? Endurance? Joseph, in this position of outward slavery, not only retained his devotion to God, as important as that was, but also maintained his witness in a foreign country. Through pressure, or even simple embarrassment, you and I can completely lose our witness in a hostile environment. Sure, we might retain our devotion to God inwardly, but at what cost? We might sacrifice our witness outwardly. Sometimes we are so busy doing God's work that we don't have five minutes for God's word. It's so important if we want the Lord to be with us that we spend time with him. We spend time in his word. We spend time talking to him. We spend time meditating on who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. Don't sacrifice the best things, which is knowing God, for the good things, which is doing God's work. Finally, I just want to bring up one final point that I noticed about this story of Joseph, and I hope it encourages you to think deeply about this passage. Joseph finds himself in paradise with a beautiful woman. Why do I say it like this? Paradise, the idea of paradise is a walled-in, safe garden where all your needs are met. 
when we look at Adam and Eve in Eden, we think of that as a paradise, a place that God had prepared and given them meaningful work to do. And just like Adam and Eve, Joseph was forbidden only one thing. For him, it was Potiphar's wife. For Adam and Eve, it was the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So these two scenarios line up. But where Adam and Eve completely failed, Joseph had success. Here he was, he had a choice. He could say yes and give in to temptation. And from what I understand from ancient archaeology and history, had he given in to temptation, it is very likely that he could have just replaced Potiphar in his authority, in his job, in his home, and had Potiphar done away with. But it wasn't his comfort or his position that concerned Joseph. It was his standing before his creator. Joseph had the freedom to say yes or to say no. And it would be utterly meaningless if that had been determined. If, if Joseph had just been determined to flee, then it really wasn't his choice, was it? And I think that God has given us the freedom to say yes or no, not only to the the good or the evil in terms of the choices we have in this world and as we navigate our way through life. But God has given us the gift of freedom to say yes or no on which the whole of eternity will depend. And God will eventually judge us as to whether or not we said yes or no to him and his provision in Christ for us. And that implies that we have the capacity to say yes or no, each one of us. Otherwise, we live in a morally absurd universe. And so I encourage you from this text that we read today, seek out the good. Do your work as unto the Lord. Find meaning in the work that God has provided for you. Find meaning on making objectively good choices. But above and beyond this, say yes to the Savior. I just want to close with one quick reading that I think summarizes this idea of choice so beautifully. Turn to John chapter 3, and we'll read just two verses, verses 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and he has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. May God bless the reading of his word.